We're going to be looking at a documentary based on a best-selling book called The Bible on Earth and exploring the field of biblical archaeology. Hi, and welcome back to another episode of Rabbi Reacts in the mini-series focusing on archaeology and the biblical story and the reaction and responses to a documentary made by some biblical minimalists called the Bible Unearthed. In today's episode, we're going to be looking at a claim that the biblical story and the topography and the places it depicts suggest that it's written much, much later. And that claim is going to be made by the Canadian archaeologist, Donald Redford. Before we look at that clip, please remember to like, to subscribe, and to click on the notification button. Okay, so let's get straight into the clip. So we're, we're talking about something that isn't quite history, but there are a number of specific geographical terms. Can they give us any clue to when this was written? The geographical clues can, in fact, help to date the person who put this down. That's true. Um, when one does that, uh, one comes up with um, a fairly good impression of what the writer knew and the geography that he was familiar with. And that would help to plug him in, in terms of chronology. When did he live? Yes. When was that time? Well, um, Pithom, as I say, has been identified as the city called Per Atom, the House of Atom. Um, this was built by Pharaoh Nico II uh, around 600 BC, certainly not before 605 BC. Um, uh, that's one item. Uh, going out of Egypt, uh, you have such names as Etam, Pihachirot, Baalzaphon, all of these are known from the later geography of Egypt. They weren't around, many of them, in the New Kingdom when the story is supposed to have taken place. So his first argument is that Pitom, one of the store cities that the Israelites' slaves build in the Torah story, is not really built till much, much later, 6th century or so. Now what's he basing this on? So the biblical story, the Torah tells us that there's two cities, Ori Miskinos, that the Israelites built, two storage cities, Es Pitom Es Ramses, a place called Pitom and a place called Ramses. Now, Ramses has been discovered, and it's pretty much everybody agrees, this place called Kantir, and which is known to have been the great ancient city of the Ramses himself had. It didn't actually last that long, but it lasts from around the mid-13th century for about a century and a half. And that is, is a massive city, kilometers squared, and that's got a lot of storage areas, almost for sure the exact place that the Torah is describing. What about Pitom? So Pitom in Egyptian means the house of Atum, one of their, go one of their gods. There are actually two ancient sites in the area that are plausible candidates for Pitom. One is called Tel El Meschuta, and one is called Tel El Retabe. Now, he, Redford, loves the idea of Tel El Meschuta. The problem is, as he says, it wasn't occupied at the time the Torah says. So he says that's the site and you see it's later. But many or maybe even the majority of archaeologists in the area actually think he's wrong. And the site is Tel Retuba, which was occupied in the area. It was indeed a city at the time the Israelites are there and very possible they built it, built by slaves in that part of the world. So to say, to say like, uh, well, Pitom is much later, you should really say, I believe... Contrary to some of the greatest archaeologists around, like James Hofmeyer, who and others who prevent very strong arguments against me, I think it's actually this place which is, was built centuries later. But to say there's no way, that's ridiculous. That's like a circular argument. If you believe it's in the 7th century, you find a 7th century site and say, oh, that's what they meant. 
and you ignore the fact that just down the road is another site that's at least a stronger, stronger candidate that's in exactly the right place at exactly the right time, as the Torah says. He then says things like, oh, we, you know, places like Piachirot and, and other places that Torah mentions, these are really uh, later sites. The method, by the way, is using, he's assuming these Egyptian words and trying to find quite similar Egyptian words, which you find later. But as a lot of the Egyptologists point out, Yes, Pitom and Ramses were almost for sure Egyptian words. The reason being that Pharaoh ordered the construction of the city that only have had Egyptian names. But as they move further out, it's very likely, in fact, they're using Hebrew words for many of the places. One of the sites that's almost for sure identified is Sukkot. The first place they arrive is Sukkot. We know it's, a, it's the Egyptian place called Sheku. And one of Redford's arguments, he doesn't say it in detail here, but in his writings, is he says, well, there was no city called Sheku at that time. There was a well-defined area, campsite, fortresses, and other things in the, in the camping zone of Sheku. But the city didn't come till much later. Well, nothing in the Torah says they went to a city. In fact, why on earth would the Israelites have gone into an Egyptian city? They would have gone to a well-known Semitic campsite area as the first place on their way out. So we know that the biblical Sukkot was exactly where, where it is in the site of Sheku. We know exactly the area they would have gone to, and it fits precisely with the Torah's narrative. We then go to a place called Piachirot. Piachirot in Hebrew means uh, the mouth of canals. In modern Hebrew, the word cherut is freedom, but that's the post-biblical Hebrew, rabbinic Hebrew. In biblical Hebrew, cherut is always something dug, something in a stone that can be etched in, in ground that can be ditches or canals. But we now know from both archaeology and also aerial surveys of the area, including from NASA, actually satellite surveys of the area, we can actually see that there was a whole network of ancient canals exactly at the point the Israelites would have been moving north from Sukkot. So this is almost for sure we can start to locate the journey at all these places are exactly there at exactly the time the Torah says so. Now, if you want to read a very detailed account of this, one of the greatest Egyptologists, a guy called James Hoffmeyer, he's got a lot of articles and videos online, including this book, Israel in Egypt, Evidence for the Authenticity of the Exodus Tradition. He's also got another one called, uh, it's over here actually, Ancient Israel in Sinai, Evidence for the Authenticity of the Wilderness Tradition. Now, one of the most fascinating pieces of work was actually not done by Hofmeyer, but from somebody at the National Center of Atmospheric Research, a guy called Carl Drew, who in the online peer-reviewed journal, um, Public Library of Science, in 2010, published the following research. Let me just explain a bit about what his work is. Amongst other things, the, they study things like, uh, you know, what would happen if a tsunami came to the American coast or something like that. So they study the effect of wind and, and wind pressure on various waters. And he looked at Hofmeyer's map of the Exodus, locating exactly all the specific places that were there at exactly the time the Torah says so, and that the Red Sea would not be the Red Sea. In fact, the Hebrew is not Red Sea, which would be Yam Adom. That is not the Hebrew word. The Hebrew is Yam Suf, which means like a reed sea. Right. Somewhere in the English, the, one of the E's from Reed got cut out and ended up being Red Sea. So people assume that Exodus happened in the modern Red Sea. But actually, that's not the route Hofmeyer says. Based on the archaeology, it would have happened much further north in the Sinai in what in ancient times we now know would have been a very, very huge lagoon, several kilometers long by several kilometers wide. What's intriguing is that Carl Drew then did research on the exact sort of area where the Exodus would have happened, according to Hofmeyer and discovered that if a wind blew for several hours of the night, it could actually split the waters, 
creating a pathway about three kilometers long, about five kilometers wide, that could last for a few hours. And then as soon as the wind subsided, it would come crashing down very, very quickly and to completely drown a chariot force or so anybody who was stuck in the mud chasing them. Now, if we look at the Torah's actual account, the biblical account in, uh, in Exodus chapter 14, uh, verse 21, Moshe, siyado, Moshe stretched out his hand Alayam over the sea, Hashem, and God brought Esayam, he, he moved the, the sea, Baruch Kadim, with an easterly wind, Azar, strong easterly wind, Kolalaila, all night. And it made the sea into dry land, and the water was split. So Drew ran a computer simulation, exactly the sort that is used at a high scientific standard all over, and discovered that the topography of the place is exactly right. That is exactly what would happen. Now, of course, that doesn't diminish the miracle. That's an incredibly miraculous event because it doesn't normally happen. But here at the right time, God blows this wind and the sea splits. Now, some may say, you know, that theologically we believe the miracle is much deeper than that or stronger. Possible. But the point is it certainly fits exactly with the narrative at exactly the site that Hofmeyer is based on the archaeology of the precise route the Israelites would take. So to just say, you know, none of this stuff is there, it's not true. It's actually all there. We know site by site or plausible site by plausible site, pretty much the exact route they take, exactly where the lake was, the massive kilometers wide area, which in ancient times would have been called a sea, Yam Suf of the Reed Sea, exactly how it would split and where they'd appear on the other side. And if anything, that, that would be ridiculous for somebody in the 5th, 7th, 6th centuries to have known about. Apart from anything else, the storcity of Ramses wouldn't have been around back then. And this is what I want to get to now in the next video, where I'm going to show and remind us and add some new details about just how incredibly coherent the biblical account is, detail for detail, with details we now know archaeologically, making the claim for ancient and authentic authorship so much stronger. That's going to be in the next video. Look forward to seeing you then. In the meantime, please remember to like, subscribe, comment away. You can look at exactly which words have come in from nearby cultures and times and know exactly when that text is written. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for watching. If you enjoyed what you saw, please click on the like and subscribe and hit the notification button below. Thanks so much.